Hey, are you here? Here you are. How do you do today? Great to see you. What I'm really saying is, I love you. Hey, wait. Isn't that a, a lyric? Oh, that's right. It was in that famous song recorded by one of the all-time greats, Louis Armstrong. Well, some called him Louie. He was also Satchmo and Satch. And to some, he was Pops. And he was some artist. A trumpeter, a singer, a recording artist. He was one of the all-time great, most influential jazz artists but really couldn't be defined by a single genre. Yes, good old Louis Armstrong, may he be heard forevermore. So we present a Louis Armstrong-related interview from the archives. Paul E. Leslie did this interview with Rick Riccardi, one of the great experts on Louis Armstrong. Ricky Riccardi is the author of the book, What a Wonderful World, The Magic of Louis Armstrong's Later Years. And Ricky's the archivist for the Louis Armstrong House Museum. He talks a lot about Pops with Paul Leslie here, coming right up. And something we want to beg you to do while we're begging. Go to YouTube. Find the Paul Leslie YouTube channel and subscribe. Don't forget to ring that bell. Ding, ding! We're trying to double our YouTube subscribers before we hit that 20-year mark in October. And could you help us keep this content coming to you? If you would visit www.thepaulesley.com support, we thank you out front for helping independent media and the spoken word. Today, it's all about Louis Armstrong. Just like every day, it's Louis' world. Hey, let's get this going. Gentlemen? Our special guest, Ricky Riccardi, is the archivist for the Louis Armstrong House Museum. Mr. Riccardi is the author of the book, What a Wonderful World, The Magic of Louis Armstrong's Later Years. It's a great pleasure to welcome Ricky Riccardi. Thank you so much for joining us. No, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Paul. I think most stories are best from the beginning. Where are you from? I am born and raised in Toms River, New Jersey, and I am still living in Toms River, New Jersey, which gives me about a two and a half hour commute to Queens every day. But for Louis Armstrong, I would go to the ends of the earth, so, <laughs> so you won't hear me complain. Tell me a little bit about the music that you grew up listening to. You weren't always interested in Louis Armstrong. It's funny. I was born in 1980. And for whatever reason, I've never enjoyed much popular music created after 1980. When I was very little, my grandparents had me on a Sinatra kick. Then my brother introduced me to Motown. And I remember buying the Motown story, like a six LP box set when I was maybe six years old. Then I got into 1950s rock and roll, Bill Haley, Chubby Checker, Elvis Presley. That took me through elementary school. 
Then in intermediate school, when everybody else is listening to hip hop and Nirvana and everything else, somehow I went way back and I got into vaudeville and Al Jolson and Eddie Cantor and comedy groups like Spike Jones and you know, Weird Al Yankovic and stuff like that. So I was kind of all over the place, but I was always kind of an old soul that entire childhood. I was hooked on old movies, on the Three Stooges, on Laurel and Hardy, on The Honeymooners, on anything old, whether it was music, television shows, radio shows, movies. I was there from birth till today. Tell us about your recollections of seeing the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. It's funny. It's almost the anniversary. It was 20 years ago this month. Everything kind of came together in the summer of 1995. Two things happened. I saw Woody Allen's movie Sleeper, and the music was just phenomenal. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of Spike Jones. My father was um, making me listen to Louis Prima, and I kind of heard echoes of that. So when the credits rolled, I said, what is this? And it said Preservation Hall Jazz Band. And I remember telling my parents about it. And my grandparents used to go to Atlantic City a lot. And just like that, within a few weeks, they got this notice, hey, this Preservation Hall jazz band is coming to Harris in Atlantic City. And I ended up going. It was my first live jazz concert. I remember everything about it. I remember the trumpet player, Wendell Brunius, who I've gotten to know pretty well. Terrific band. They did just a closer walk with V and Narvin Kimball, who was about almost 90 years old at the time. He sang and played banjo and they finished with the Saints go marching in and marched all around. And I said, all right, well, this this is this sounds good to me. <laughs> so right around that same time, I saw the movie The Glenn Miller Story. It was probably the same month, September 95. And I knew of Louis Armstrong because I had this whole immersion in early 20th century pop culture, but I never really checked him out or paid attention. And in the middle of the Glenn Miller story, he comes out and he does Basin Street Blues. And immediately, again, it kind of touched off this nerve, like, oh, this sounds like the Preservation Hall Band and Louis Prima and everything else. But I was so captivated by him, you know, the personality, the persona, the singing, the trumpet playing, that as soon as I saw that clip, I said, all right, I need to hear everything, read everything, learn everything about this guy. So it was kind of a two-fisted approach between Preservation Hall and the Glenn Miller story. And here I am 20 years later, almost to the day, probably. (laughs) Could you put into words why Louis Armstrong is so fascinating to you? Well, the one thing that spoke to me was plain old-fashioned joy. He just exuded such happiness, and he made me feel happy, and he still does. To this day, better than any medicine, better than any illegal substance, (laughs) if if I'm having, legal or illegal, I should say, if I'm having a rough day, if I'm stressed out, if anything's going on, if I pop in one or two Louis Armstrong tracks or whatever, it's like I'm immediately recalibrated and ready to go again. It's kind of interesting because... I had this obsession with early comedy. I, you know, I listed all the comedians and vaudevillians and all that stuff. And so one of the things, besides just the great music, is I found him very funny and very joyous. And I just thought that was great. 
And so when I really got immersed into Armstrong, it was kind of a shock to read all the criticisms about him. Remember, this is all in the mid-90s, and almost every book that came out in that period had the same line of thought that Louis Armstrong is this genius in the 20s. And then he completely squanders it. He becomes Uncle Tom, becomes commercial, becomes a clown. And, you know, even back then, 15 years old, I never saw it that way. I said, this is a very gifted comedian who just happens to be the greatest trumpet player and greatest singer I've ever heard in my life. So that whole total package combination, plus just the joy he exuded and the conviction in all of his music, it spoke to me then, it speaks to me now. We're talking today with Ricky Riccardi. He is one of the foremost experts on Louis Armstrong or Louis Armstrong. You've read so much about him, you've written about him, you've listened to so many recordings of his music, of him speaking. Why do you believe Louis Armstrong did what he did? Well, I think his whole story is just this, you know, incredible tale. I mean, he was almost, you can almost say he was preordained. I mean, growing up in the neighborhood he grew up in, the racism, the poverty, everything, even when he becomes a professional musician, he tells these stories of of almost getting shot. He marries a prostitute. She pulls a knife on him. I mean, his whole upbringing in New Orleans is this kind of miracle that how he even gets out alive. He gets arrested multiple times. And so there's almost, I don't want to get all evangelical here, but there's something about it that's like, you know, how does he make it out of that with such determination and such an incredible innate talent to literally change the world. I mean, what would we be listening to today without Louis Armstrong? I mean, he changed the way people played music on their instruments. He changed the way people sang. Every strain of 20th century popular music can kind of go back uh, to his genius. But, yeah, the question, why did he do it? The answer is actually kind of simple. And again, it, it informs so much about his way of thought I think growing up in that environment, in that poverty, just drove him to do whatever he needed to do to not be hungry anymore, to not have to steal, to not have to work as a laborer and deliver coal and work three jobs a day and all that stuff. His work ethic was tremendous, and he saw at an early age that music was his way out of that life. So even when he had all the riches and all the fame and everything you could ever dream of. He never lost that ethic. He hated taking vacations. He hated days off. He chose to live in Kona, Queens, in the most humble, working class, Archie Bunker house, you know, you could ever imagine. A guy who could have lived anywhere in a mansion anywhere. This is how he wanted to live. So those lessons in New Orleans kind of informed him. One of my favorite stories, In 1967, Armstrong is at a Howard Johnson motel in Framingham, Massachusetts, with his friend Jack Bradley. And they're eating together in this tiny little beaten-up motel room. And Lewis, you know, he had just had the Hello, Dolly number one hit, and he was about to record What a Wonderful World. His career is doing incredibly well, 66 years old. And he looks over and tells Jack Bradley, you know, Jack, I've really made it. And Jack says, what do you mean? Of course you made it. You know, you're famous, you're this, you're that. And Lewis goes, no, look over there in the refrigerator over there. Anytime I'm hungry, I can go over there and grab an egg and make myself something to eat. And that's how I know I've made it. 
So that's why sometimes you see celebrities, you see musicians, they hit a certain peak and they just kind of plateau. You know, they kind of lose the drive. They made their money. They made everything else. And for Lewis, to me, it's the entirety of his career. From the minute he picks up that trumpet to the minute they laid him in the ground, he never lost that determination and willingness to just please the public, to work hard, to put everything he had into his music. And that still speaks to people to this day. There have been so many artists throughout the years, past and present, who have said that Louis Armstrong was one of the biggest influences on them. What artists did Louis Armstrong respect the most? Oh, this is a, this is a great question. Armstrong listened to all kinds of music. So when he was growing up in New Orleans, he said a big day for him is when he got his first record player. And jazz wasn't really being recorded then. So the, the records he had to buy were records of opera singers. So when you listen to his trumpet style, the high notes, the drama, everything, it's purely operatic. So he always had a soft spot for Enrico Caruso and you know, John McCormick, Tetrazzini, all these singers from the from the 19 teens. In the jazz trade, his number one idol was Joe King Oliver. King Oliver was a great cornetist from New Orleans. He was the king of New Orleans cornetists. But for all of his great skills as a musician, as a songwriter, as a band leader, his biggest thing was he helped guide Louis Armstrong when Louis Armstrong was learning how to play the cornet. Any questions Louis had, anything he wanted to be shown or any tips, King Oliver always made time for Armstrong. So when King Oliver invited Louis Armstrong to come to Chicago and join his band, that was the greatest moment of his life. So King Oliver is definitely one of the heroes. This always rankled jazz fans for years, but Armstrong's favorite band was Guy Lombardo, which is pretty much the most anti-jazz band in the world. You know, very syrupy, kind of corny dance band arrangements of popular hits. But Louis Armstrong loved beautiful melodies, and he always said that no band ever played the melody like Guy Lombardo. And when he was leading a big band in the early 1930s, he wanted his band to sound like Guy Lombardo. So that was something that just purists, you know, had their mind. But, you know, Lombardo's a hero. The first three that come to mind would be Caruso, Lombardo, and King Oliver. But we have his record collection at the Armstrong Archives, and it's fascinating. He listened to a ton of Frank Sinatra. He loved Bing Crosby. He loved Barbara Streisand. He loved the Beatles. At the end of his life, the last few months, he's listening to Neil Diamond and Isaac Hayes and the Plastic Ono Band and the Fifth Dimension. So he had huge ears, and he never stopped listening to what was going on in popular music. He always said that when he was young, the old-timers would tell him, stay before the public, stay before the public. So he always knew not to get old-fashioned, not to get in a rut, to always keep up with the times, which is why he remained so popular until the very end. You mentioned Frank Sinatra in that list of artists he respected. I was reading on your blog, you have this blog, It's and everyone, <laughs> everyone can visit it. It's dippermouth.blogspot.com, the wonderful world of Louis Armstrong. And you talk about Frank Sinatra, and you talk about the respect Frank Sinatra had for Louis Armstrong. Tell us a little bit about their relationship. Yeah, Louis and Frank, I mean, they, they probably weren't 
close pals just because of how much Lewis worked. He didn't really have too many show business friends. So Armstrong was never, quote unquote, part of the Rat Pack or anything. But their appreciation society, the mutual appreciation society was huge. I mean, Sinatra once said early on, my phrasing developed from a combination of musicians and singers that I heard. Louis Armstrong had a great effect on me. So that's that's Sinatra. And Lewis, like I said, we have his record collection, and he must have owned two dozen Sinatra records. So they definitely admired each other. They appeared together on radio in the 40s. They made multiple TV appearances. They were in the movie High Society with Bing Crosby in 1956. So even though they weren't the type to kind of hang out and take over Vegas and, and all that stuff, Lewis was listening to Frank very intensely, and Frank was listening and learning from Lewis right from the start of his career. So it's two names that not everybody associates with each other immediately, but you can't have one without the other. We're talking today with Ricky Riccardi, the author of the book What a Wonderful World, The Magic of Lewis Armstrong's Later Years. Tell us. Based on the later year recordings, you've listened to so many of them. Which recording do you find the most unique from his later years? Oh, the most unique. Okay, let's see. The most unique one would be The Real Ambassadors. It's a 1961 album he made. It was all original music written by Dave Brubeck and his wife, Iola Brubeck. You know, there's this thing in the late 40s and 50s where the young, modern jazz musicians, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, and Charles Mingus, all of them, they start taking shots at Armstrong. They think he's out of date. They think he's old-fashioned. They think he's jumping around, clowning on stage. And, you know, they're, they're not afraid to, to call him out on this in public. But Dave Brubeck and his wife, Iola, they saw Lewis going around the world. They saw the happiness he brought to people. And they said, you know, Louis Armstrong is a better ambassador for this country than the ambassadors that Washington, D.C. employs. And so Iola Brubeck said, we should write a Broadway play about this, about how jazz musicians make better ambassadors. So she wrote something in 1957 called World Take a Holiday. And they tinkered with it, and they tinkered with it, they tinkered with it, they changed the name to Blow Satchmo, and yeah, they, they, they were still fine-tuning it. Finally, in 1961, they had it where they wanted it. They had all this original music. And again, we have this reel-to-reel tape at the Armstrong Archives where Dave and Iola make an audio letter for Lewis. And they send it to him, and they give this beautiful, heartfelt speech in the beginning about how much they admire him and what he does and everything. Then Dave Brubeck sits down and plays all of this original music, hard music, and he sings terribly. <laughs> There's a reason why Dave Brubeck was not a professional singer, but he sings every song so Lewis can learn the lyrics. And in September of 61, they set up a record session, and it was Lewis and his band and Brubeck's quartet. They got Carmen McRae, they got Lambert Hendrickson Ross, and the idea was they were going to record this album and use it as almost a demo, even though it was going to be released by Columbia Records, and eventually they wanted it to be a Broadway play. So they released the album. I've talked to people who were there, Lewis's friends, Jack Bradley, Dan Morgenstern, and they said that they never saw Lewis work so hard because he had every night he's doing all these songs that he had been doing for years and all that. But to learn 
16, 17 Dave Brubeck compositions and ones with tongue-twisting lyrics and deep meanings. Like they say, I look like God and, you know, I'm the real ambassador and all this, these kind of sometimes veiled and sometimes not so veiled little blows stricken at the government and race relations and civil rights and all that stuff. And multiple times, Lewis had tears in his eyes in the studio. So he worked so hard on this. The album was released, and it bombed. It was the worst-selling album in Brubeck's career, and he was as hot as a pistol at this point, you know, after Take 5 and Time Out and all that. So 1962, they organized one live performance of it at the Monterey Jazz Festival, and they got the whole group together and everybody had a script and they had to read the lyrics on stage. So it was kind of an unpolished version. But again, Armstrong had tears in his eyes and they got a huge standing ovation. And it was this apparently beautiful moment. But nobody recorded it, not even a bootleg. Nobody filmed it. And as soon as it ended, all dreams of putting the real ambassadors on Broadway died. And for like the next 40 or so years, it was kind of this underground album. Only in the last 10, 15 years, there's been this reappraisal. There's been new performances of it at Lincoln Center, at the Detroit Jazz Festival, at other jazz festivals. I have a friend at University of the Pacific, Keith Hatchek, who works with the Brubeck Institute. He's writing a book on the real ambassadors. So now it's known as one of these kind of great moments in the Armstrong canon, but for years it was really underground, and it's pretty much unlike anything he ever did. I mean, Louis Armstrong tackling Dave Brubeck, criticizing the government, singing about race. It's really deep. The Real Ambassadors. Check it out. There's one specific song I was hoping you could kind of tell us a little bit about. I recall hearing this song first in a Publix grocery store commercial, (laughs) and I just, I love this song. The Home Fire. Oh, yeah. That was recorded in 1968 for the album, the What a Wonderful World album. And it's kind of interesting because you could really sense that Lewis is thinking about his home in Corona, Queens, as he sings this thing. And, you know, there's such warmth there. What he didn't know is two months, three months after he recorded it, he ended up in intensive care and he would spend the next two years of his life at home, you know, enjoying the home fire. But the song itself was recorded for the album, What a Wonderful World, which is kind of interesting in itself, because What a Wonderful World was kind of Lewis's tribute to Queen. So the two songs really work together. If you want to know how Louis Armstrong felt about Queens, about his neighborhood, just listen to those two back to back. What a Wonderful World was recorded in August of 1967, And the record label, ABC Paramount, was so sure it was going to be a dud that they put zero promotion behind it in the United States. And sure enough, it sold next to nothing in the United States. But it became a number one hit around the world in England and South Africa, all these places. So in 1968, there was such a demand to do an entire album. And so... Bob Field was the producer, and he went around looking for more kind of similar songs, kind of sentimental songs. Yeah, had some strings. You know, Louis plays a little bit of horn, but really heartfelt songs. 
And the home fire, like I said, for us working at the Louis Armstrong House Museum, it's one of our theme songs because he had been living in Queens for 26 years at that point. And like I said, he was about to spend a lot more time there. And it's just this beautiful little melody that I don't know if anybody else can pull it off without sounding maybe a little corny or a little, you know, weepy or whatever. But Louis, the heart just shines through and there it is. Corona's on his brain and he's the happiest guy in the world. That brings us to, perhaps, the most famous track ever recorded by Louis Armstrong. The one most known by the public, What a Wonderful World. I was hoping you could tell us about the songwriter who wrote that, George David Weiss. Yeah, George David Weiss was a professional songwriter. He wrote many songs throughout the 1960s, often in collaboration with Bob Thiel. Bob Thiel, again, was the the producer, and he actually put his name on What a Wonderful World. He he used a pseudonym for that one. But he might not have written it, but Bob Field took the credit for the idea. He said it was 1967, Vietnam, race riots, the the country is, is on the verge of blowing up. And he said, you know what we need? We need Louis Armstrong. So he told George Weiss about this. And Weiss wrote the song, which if you hum the melody... The song is fairly similar in many spots to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. But, yeah, there's nothing wrong with borrowing from the best. When they gave it to Armstrong, apparently he ran it over on the trumpet, the melody. And, yeah, he he must have made the Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star connection. He didn't really know what, (laughs) what this was, what was going here. But they brought him in the studio and they had a choir they had an orchestra, they had a giant arrangement, and they really had this whole souped-up thing. And so people ask us to this day, what was Lewis thinking about? Was he thinking about Vietnam? Was he thinking about racism and Martin Luther King and everything else? And he talked about it. He said once he read those lyrics and brought him right back to his block in Corona, Queens, where he had been living for 25 years at that point. So he put his heart into it, and like I said, it kind of became this number one hit. And I think it's George Weiss's probably most well-known song. I mean, he wrote, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm biased because <laughs> I'm such an Armstrong nut. I mean, his name's on Can't Help Falling in Love With You and Lying Sleeps Tonight and a bunch of, you know, other great gigantic hits. But for me, you know, the fact that he came up with What a Wonderful World, that's enough to keep him in the pantheon forever. You've done so much research on Louis Armstrong, and another wonderful resource was all of the recordings he made where he would speak about different things, documenting himself in many ways. And you interviewed so many people. Based on all of this, what would you say Louis Armstrong's philosophy was? How did he approach the world, his life? His philosophy was, there's many philosophies here that I'm going to try to wrap, but they're all tied together. I would say never want anything you can't have. You know, he, he always lived a very humble existence. Money meant nothing to him. Anytime he got bonuses and cash and all that stuff, he would just give it away. And he would give speeches about that, about how, you know, he never had anything he didn't need. And his other thing was to always treat people with respect. His clarinet player, Joe Moreno, gave me a beautiful quote. He said he would just watch for Lewis with fans. And he said it was everybody. It was kids. And it was, you know, elderly people. And 
Danny Barker has this great scene in one of his books about Lewis's dressing room, and there'd be like, you know, pimps on one side and preachers on the other side, and, you know, Lewis would just be bringing everybody together. So there's the humanity aspect. This was a man was a total genius, and he never thought of his music in theoretical terms. He never talked about diatonic scales and, and stuff like that. His music was his way of communicating. His favorite line was a note-to-note in any language. So it's that whole combination of the humanity, about working hard, about treating people with respect, people from all walks of life, races, creeds, and color, and to never get too materialistic, to never get too wrapped up in money and competition and worrying about what the other fella has. You know, when you combine all that stuff, you get Louis Armstrong. You're able to pursue this love of Louis Armstrong's music on a daily basis. What is the best thing about being Ricky Riccardi? <laughs> what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, 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 I mean, I'm, I consider myself, I'm quoting Lou Gehrig now, but I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth because 20 years ago, when this music hit me between the eyes, I became a deep, deep, deep Louis Armstrong fan. And, How many incredible Louis Armstrong fans are there around the world? I've been fortunate enough to meet so many of them. Louis Armstrong fans are the greatest people on earth. Because if you dedicate part of your life to Louis Armstrong, it just seems to make you, uh, I don't know, a better person. Something about him just rubs off. So for years, I was just a super fan. Every band has super fans. But how many times do you get to make a living just through the thing that you're uh, fanatic about so i had a very kind of narrow path and it wasn't an easy path i mean i graduated from rutgers with a 350 page thesis and a master's degree in 2005 and i had to paint houses for four years my father was a painting contractor and it was the only work i could get my wife and i just got married we had our first daughter in 2009 and i just couldn't get a teaching gig i couldn't get anything my book was getting rejected left and right So I went out and I painted houses and I sweated in the summer and I froze in the winter and I inhaled a lot of paint thinner. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was nuts. But anyhow, people on the jobs would be like, Jesus, you know, you have a master's degree and you're painting. You must be the smartest painter in the world. But while I was painting, you know, I'd give lectures on Armstrong. I started my blog on Armstrong. I hired an agent to help me with the book. I kept on tinkering with the book. And through it all, I just remained. I don't know why, but I just remained very serene, very calm. You know, people would be like, oh, get a job teaching. Get a, or just get your book out with University Press. Do something. And I'd be like, nah, this book's important, and I know what I want to do. And so just patience and passion, you know, you combine that after a while. And, and persistence, you know, the three Ps. I'm, I'm inventing a self-help book as I go along here. But <laughs> you, you combine it all. And everything just fell like dominoes. I got the book deal. I got the job at the Armstrong House. This past Monday, two nights ago, I taught my first week of music of Louis Armstrong, a graduate-level course at Queens College. I've produced box sets and written liner notes. I just came back from New Orleans earlier this year. I went to England. I've been to Italy. I've been to the Monterey Jazz Festival and, you know, all points around the country. So I don't know why or how but i don't want to spend time analyzing it i'm just here now and i get to immerse myself 
and immerse other folks in Louis Armstrong every day of my life. And if that is not a sign that dreams can come true, I don't know what is. For anyone who's listening to this interview, wherever they are, what would you say to them? Totally open-ended. Listen to Louis Armstrong. <laughs> I, seriously. You know, if you only know him as the, the Hello Dolly, What a Wonderful World guy, well, those are great records, you know, so don't don't shy away from those records. But but check them out. Listen to Satch Plays Fats. Listen to Louis Armstrong Plays W.C. Handy. Visit the Louis Armstrong House Museum. I mean, you can really learn how to live your life through Louis Armstrong, through his model, through his generosity, through his humanity. It's more than just notes on a piece of paper. You know, it's the man, it's the music, it's the everything he overcame. It's him speaking out against injustice. It's him breaking down civil rights barriers. The entire 20th century is wrapped up in this one man. And you don't need to devote your life to him like me. But if you just give him a little time and just give him a little chance, like I said, it's better than medicine. It's better than anything. He makes you feel good, and you will not regret it. I promise you that. My last question. Who is Ricky Riccardi? The luckiest man on the planet. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, again, I, I don't want to get all weepy here, but I'm very lucky. It's, it's, been, it's been a 20-year run, and... To be able to do this, yeah, to be able to make a living through Louis Armstrong, I'm also blessed with an incredible wife who is the smartest person I know, and she's expecting her third daughter on the way. So, I don't know. I'm going to turn 35 next week, and part of me feels like I've accomplished everything I've wanted to accomplish by 35, but at the same time, I'm excited that I've gotten this far, and I cannot wait to see what lies ahead, because... I'm in this world now, and I'm not getting out until they carry me out. <laughs> Mr. Riccardi, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and also your love of Louis, Louis Armstrong's work. Oh, Paul, this has been great. And I, again, I wish you a very happy birthday. And thank you for your persistence and for, <laughs> for getting me here to do this today. This has been a delight. Thank you very much. Much obliged. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. Again, this was a ball. The beautiful questions. Thank you. You know, sometimes I get the same damn questions every time, but those were great. Those were really great. Thank you. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com Click on Support the Show and thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me! The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.